0: Welcome to the Reliance Community Podcast. Worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock or 1045 a.m. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Uh, man, I always want to be mindful. This is the week in before Thanksgiving, and, and uh, we're thankful for you guys. Um, I was, we were praying this morning, and, and I said one of the, the biggest things that should mark the church should be that we are thankful people and not thankless people. Amen? we have so much to be thankful for. And we are thankful for you guys, thankful to do life with you guys, thankful to call you family. And uh, even if your Thanksgiving gets crazy and you don't wanna be around family, all right? Uh, we are glad that you guys are, are with us. Um, you just saw, this is where we're after. We, we, uh, we really believe that what you just saw in that, um, that video is the heart of what God has called us to be a, as a church. I'm not just saying here at Reliance, it should be the heart of every church. The heart of every church and, 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 and is, is this identity of multiplying or multiplication, which we're gonna talk about. But the heart of every church should be that it's not about what happens just within inside of these walls, but what we hear inside of these walls, what we take to heart inside of these walls, and then going outside of these walls, amen? And, and so our, our, our Design is kind of a flawed design because it's not the design of Jesus. Jesus gave us a perfect design and his design was it wasn't just gonna be him preaching to the masses, but rather um, him teaching 12 to go out and teach 12 to go out and teach 12 and to continue to multiply until it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And so you heard us say last week that standing on a platform and and teaching, it should be reversed and it really should be you guys are the ones spreading the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And, And so that's what we're talking about. When we talk about multiplying, we're talking about this kingdom principle of multiplication that we believe is the kingdom uh, calling um, for, for all people, that all of us in this room have a kingdom calling. And in that kingdom calling, we're all called to know God and make him known. Remember that from last week? Know God, and it's not difficult, we're called to know God and and make him known. And not just know God like I've got a knowledge of God, we're called to know God like in an intimate way, like I've got an intimate love affair with the God of the universe. He knows me inside and out, I know him, um, and, and we go after this thing together. And then I want people to know about that as well. And so we believe that this is the kingdom calling for all people, and we're gonna talk about that. We talked a little bit about it last week. But then each of us also has a kingdom assignment. You guys remember that? That you know we've got blue collar, white collar, we got people that come out of addictions, we got people that have never experienced that. So God puts all of us into this little melting pot in here, calls it the church. We come from all different walks of life with the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit filling us, amen? And that from that, then, we will go out in our kingdom assignment to our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, with the context, man, of what we've lived through our testimony, and we'll share the hope of Jesus with everyone that we meet. And that we'll see God move in a tremendous way. And this is what it means to be a multiplying church. And so we've really camped out on this um, 2 Timothy 2, two is kind of the heartbeat of this series where Paul writes to Timothy, you have heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. So Paul heard it. He passed it on to Timothy. He tells Timothy to pass it on and he tells him to tell them to pass it on. And so it's just a continued thing to pass on. Make decide Who make disciples who make disciples. And so there's a quote by Bill Hole that says this God has not promised to bless our good motives. God has not promised to bless our dreams. God has not promised to bless our innovation. God has promised to bless his plan. And that plan is the disciples make other disciples. Everything else is a sideshow. Amen. This is, this is where we're at. This is what we want. This is what we desire. And so um, in this series, you guys got to have an opportunity um, uh, to, to write some notes down if you want. But more than anything else, and we, we talked a little bit about this last week, is that we don't want you just to hear this. I want you to buy into it um, because we, we, we want the church to become what it was functioned and formed for. And the church was functioned and formed to be a mission force in the world, okay? Not, not, not to be a mission force on the corner, <laughs> but to be a mission force in the world. And so um, if you take notes, and then on the back side is really the most important thing. It says, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? And so if you didn't get one of these, they're out there at the Welcome Center. You can grab one when you leave. But what is it that God is stirring in your heart um, that you wanna do uh, with what you hear? And most of this is coming from kind of two sources. Most of our preaching over the next couple of weeks is coming from two sources. If you wanna really continue this, number one is this spiritual multiplication in the real world. I wanna encourage you, man, get this. Let's learn how to do it strategically and let's win the world to Jesus, number one. And then number two, um, this book right here, and I told you a little bit about, this last week oh my goodness it says what if jesus meant what he said that's what the book's entitled all right so once again um if you read it and you hate me afterwards i understand because it's kind of one of those books you can't just read it and put it down and be like i'm not going to do anything with it all right so what if jesus meant what he said i want to encourage you to check those two books out if you get a chance um really the 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 reality behind this and why this is so important is because of a, a, a diagram that we showed you last week can you bring that up for me and we, we were showing uh, what multiplication looks like. And we kind of showed from year one to 33, if we bought into this thing, if we bought into this principle of multiplication and we said, okay, God, it's not about notching our bell, I invited somebody to church, but if you intentionally took one person and you said, I'm going to walk by this one person, I'm, this one person, this one whole year, I'm going to take this person, I'm going to show them the hope of Jesus, I'm going to love them in life, I'm going to walk with them side by side, arm's length, not just inviting them to church, letting the pastor do the work, all right, but truly walking by this person, if I do that, then in one year we'll have two of us. And then if they do that in two years, there'll be four of us. And if they do that in three years, we'll have eight of us. And the way that multiplication works in the kingdom of God is that by year 33, if we truly bought into this, 33 billion, or I'm sorry, eight, eight billion people would be reached. And we don't have an eight billion people yet in the world. So eight billion people would have an opportunity to hear the gospel message. Now think about this. If that's just one of us that buys into it, what if we all buy into it? What if we all buy into this, this principle of multiplication? God could radically change the world through his plan, which his plan is us. Everybody say us. His plan is us. And so we, we want, this is our heart. We want to stir your hearts a little bit. We wanna stir your hearts so that you know this kingdom calling of multiplication is the pinnacle of the Christian life, to know Jesus and to make him known. And so just real quickly, I wanna recap why this is so important. In your Bibles, Judges chapter 2, verse six through seven. I read this last week this is why this is so important. After Joshua sent people away, so they've just come into the promised land. They've taken out anything that would stop them from inheriting the the land that God promised that he would give them. That, Of course, Jericho, I mean, all of the strongholds that they came up against are gone. Now they're ready to settle into this land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be awesome. They're going to raise their children and their children's children and so on and so forth. And it says, after Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israel served the Lord. Here's the key. The Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders. So there was a stirring in the heart of of Joshua. There was a stirring in the heart of the leaders, okay, where they were going to serve the Lord faithfully. And it says, and all the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen, somebody say "seen," seen, all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So they were serving the Lord faithfully. Joshua passes away. Verse 10 says this, and then after that generation died, another generation grew up, and here's the key, who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember, somebody say remember. Remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. The Israelites, because of this, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Church, this is why this is such a big deal, because some things happened from that first century church who said yes to Jesus, bought into Jesus, the disciples, like they saw Jesus move, then they trained up the next generation, they bought into it from that first century to where we're at right now. That first century church saw this as the kingdom calling in life. This is what we give our life to. This is everything that we're about and into now where we're setting at today, which is it's kind of optional. We don't necessarily have to do it. We've got pastors that do that kind of thing, right? And, and so something happened from that calling of Jesus from the first church into where we're at right now, where it became that mandate on all believers to now optional for all believers. And I really feel like it's because of kind of what happened in Judges chapter two right there, where each generation kind of lost a little bit of the responsibility. Amen. Come on now. Amen. Amen. And so we have a mantle then that we've gotta pick up and we've gotta carry with us. And so we talked about our calling last week, now we're gonna talk about our cost because everything costs something, right? There's no such thing as anything for free except for the grace of God which costs you your life, amen? Everything costs something. I was sharing with the first service, I'm trying to teach my kids this principle right now. Anybody have to teach your kids this principle that everything costs something, all right? Like, they're like, why don't you just write one of those things? They're called checks, right? You have to have money that backs that up. Just write one of those things for that, Dad, right? And uh, I'm trying to teach my kids, and and, and here's why, because I was the same way growing up. I grew up with two of my favorite shows that I would watch in the mornings, Saved by the Bell and The Price is Right. Any Price is Right fans out there? Come on now, Price is Right was awesome, all right? And (laughs) there you go. And I would watch The Prices Right, and I used to think as a kid, like how awesome would it be to win cars? How awesome would it be to win all of this free stuff? It's free, man, they're just loading them up with free stuff. And then I realized something, it's not really free because you gotta pay taxes on it, right? And so as I got older, I learned that on a lot of these shows, when they win these cars and they win all of these free prizes, a lot of people walk away from them because they don't wanna pay for them. They don't wanna pay the taxes for them. I'm like, that's crazy or, or, or take, take when you go on vacation and somebody offers you a free stay three nights, you know, two days, three nights, whatever it is, where you can go and you can have a, a good time and they're gonna give you this condo for free. All you gotta do is set through like a six-hour session, right, and when you're done with it, you're like, what did I do? It's the worst thing ever. Why, because it's not really free because everything costs something. In fact, I told you guys last week that um, we'll pass on what we're passionate for, right? And even the things that we're passionate for will cost us things. I told you we started a men's soccer team, all right? All right, for the church. And uh, I've missed every game, but I showed up for the game on Friday night. I want you to know something. I love sports, they hate me, okay? And, and we had all of these guys, and we have tons of subs. And as, as, as all these guys are rotating through, you, you know, six guys are on, and then they'll go off, and six... I had to let guys pass me because I didn't want to go back in, right? You want to know why? Because it cost me something. Everything right here, it cost me, okay? It, I'm telling you, what we're passionate for will cost us as well. There's a cost to everything in life. Last week I shared with you that what we're passionate for will pass on. I want you to hear this today though. What we give our lives to is what we value. What we give our lives to, what we say we give our lives to is what we value. There's always a cost. So if I am sitting here today and I'm telling you that we give our lives to what we value, what is it you're giving your lives to? What is it you're passionate about that you're giving your lives to? Because whatever it is that you are giving your lives to is what you value. And let me just tell you, that has a cost to it. We're crazy right now if we think that multiplication does not have a cost. It's crazy if you think that making disciples does not have a cost to your life. It has a cost, and that's probably why we shy away from it more so than we take after it. You see, church... um, I'm going to show you something in, in your Bibles today, and we're just going to kind of hang out here a little bit with some words that Jesus shared. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, if you've got your Bibles, you can get them out. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, and you've got Jesus getting ready. To, he's coming on the scene, and he's getting ready to call his disciples, and, and he says this to a few men, to 12 guys. He says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of what? This was the calling right here. So you've got all these guys and they're, they're doing their thing and they're, they're surrounded by their jobs and their families or whatever. Jesus comes in and he simply says this, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I'm always fascinated by this. Because you don't read about how they were like tending to their nets and they were fishing like, you know what, let's pray about that. Let me think about that. It says immediately they, they dropped their nets. Something in the voice of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus stirred in their hearts where it wasn't like, let me go consult my wife, which... I'm just saying that's smart to do, gentlemen, okay? Sometimes when we need to, all right? But they didn't say, I need to go consult my wife. There's something in their heart said, drop the nets and go. They're, they're, they weren't sitting there going, I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this calling. Something stirred within them. That in that calling, when he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, something came into them where they're like, yes, purpose, not fishing, not doing this, not doing this. There's something with purpose that's just been spoken over my life. So just like this, this small band of 12 guys respond to probably the most difficult, life changing, joy filled, possibly the greatest call to ever be given to humanity. And that was, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So for three years, they followed and they learned and they began to understand and think like Jesus. And then all of a sudden, within three years, man, he was killed, he was crucified, he was buried and he rose rose from the dead and stayed with them for a little bit. Then he ascended into heaven and just like that, he wasn't with them in person any longer. And yet something within them just kept stirring in their hearts. He called us, follow me, I'll make you fishers. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Something continued to stir in their heart. And then he gives his commission in Matthew 28. Go make disciples. Continue to fish for men. And their lives would never go back to their old life, to the way things used to be. These guys would become fishers of men, and this would become their consuming ambition listen to me. This would become their consuming ambition. Their life now would be to fish for men. Their life now would be to share the hope of Jesus with all of humanity. Their life would be that nothing else matters unless you know the hope of Jesus. And they would give everything they had to this consuming ambition. And we know about it because you can read the story of it in the book of Acts, where they go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And within one generation, they grew 400 times the size of. They started with in one generation. Why? Because that generation believed in what that calling of Christ was over their life, and they did not view it as an optional thing. Jesus's commissioning was this church. Listen, John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is commissioning them. Look what he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And I want you to hear that as the Father has sent me, think of all the things that Jesus did, think of all the things that he, he, he had to lay down, think of the cost of what it cost the life of Jesus, okay? Think of the cost that he endured, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's very clear cut, it's very clear in the way that he is commissioning. In the same way that I went, so you too will go. Now let me tell you why this is so important, because Jesus paid a high cost, amen? He paid a high cost, and so we talk about this, and when we talk about the cost, we have to look at the person of Jesus. What cost did he pay? Because John 20 says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And my hope is that we get a little bit stirred today. My hope is that somebody in here gets a little bit fired up in their heart and says, I don't like what you're saying, man. My hope is that we get a little bit stirred because what I wanna break more than anything in here is complacency. What I wanna break more than anything in here is just like, I'm good at riding the fence. What I wanna break is that, look, I'm either cold or or, or I'm hot, but I don't wanna be lukewarm anymore, amen, church? This is our heart, this is what we want, and so let me say something to you that, that some of you, you may not like. Jesus didn't save you from the cross. He didn't save you from the cross. And I've preached this. Like, Jesus saved you from the cross. You didn't have to go to the cross. And da, 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 da. Like, listen, I want you to hear this, though. Jesus didn't save you from the cross. He saved us to the cross. Amen? He saved us to the cross because he took the cross. Jesus saved us to the cross. That at that cross, man, we find redemption. At that cross, we find salvation. At that cross, he laid the bridge. When there was enmity between us and God, that cross was laid across it so that we could cross over it. Amen? He didn't save us from the cross. He saved us to the cross. Here's the problem. We think that sometimes he saved us from the cross. I don't have to endure it anymore. We think that he saved us from the cross, so therefore it should be a pain-free ride from here on out. And if you've been with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that that ain't true. Listen, Jesus didn't save us from the cross because we hear it in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and What? Take up his, her cross and follow me. He didn't save us from it. He saved us to it. And now he's calling us in that calling to take up our cross. Think of it this way. Logic would tell us this. If you see somebody wearing shorts, I mean, they've got Bermuda shorts on, sunglasses. They've got their Hawaiian t-shirt on them, flip flops. They are probably not going to a corporate meeting. Amen. Most likely. And if you do in that way, I want to work at your job. All right. All right. But, but that's, logic would say they're, they're probably not going to a corporate meeting. They must be on vacation or something. Logic would tell us if you see somebody who's got a helmet on and shoulder pads and they've got football gear on and cleats, they're probably not going to a soccer game, all right? And if they are, that's rough soccer, I'm just saying. Logically, when we see these things, we're like, this guy's dressed this way. He's obviously not going to a corporate meeting. This guy's dressed this way. He's obviously going to a football game. Well, listen to this, church. When when, when Jesus tells us that we're to take up our crosses, what is assumed when you're carrying a cross? The person carrying the cross has before him or her a destination that may not be comfortable, amen? There was nobody that was walking down the road when the Romans were getting to crucify them that was carrying a cross where all of the people go, I bet you they're going somewhere pleasant right now. When they saw the cross in their time frame, when they saw the way the Romans used the cross, they knew that the cross was used as a death instrument. They knew the cross was used as a thing to cause unpleasant harm to you. So Jesus didn't sit there and go, oh man, I shouldn't have said take up your cross. Like That's not what I meant. He meant it. He's saying when you're dressed and you've got that cross on your back, it probably means that your life is not always going to be super comfortable. And this is important because this is our starting point. We've got to come to grips with this as believers. If we're going to buy into multiplication, if we're going to buy into the fact that Jesus is calling us to do more than just to come and sit in church, then we've got to buy into the fact that there's a cost to it, but Jesus took the cost first. I read a quote and this guy was talking about how Jesus started this thing. And he says, who in the world starts a, revol- a revolution with the words come and die? Like out of all the things that you could come up with, who starts a revolution out of these words come and die? Or how many of you came to Jesus because somebody shared this with you? Look, God loves you and has a very difficult life plan for you. How many heard that when you came to Jesus? Look, I, if you choose to follow Jesus, you're going to experience troubles. Where, where do you want to sign up at, Right. If you choose to follow Jesus, you gotta pick up your cross, you gotta follow him. God loves you, has a plan for you. Like most of us in here, when we came to Jesus, we weren't brought to Jesus this way. It always started with his love and his grace, amen? And it should. It always starts with his love and it starts with his grace because before we can take up our cross and follow him, we have to know the character of God and the character of God loves you. We have to know that it always is God who initiates this thing. Somewhere along the line though, something happens. We've got to know that it's his love and his grace and we come into him because of his love and his grace and then he gives us those words, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and we hear that and we get all goosebumps and we're like, yes, I want to have purpose. I want to make fishers of men. I want to be that guy. I want to be that girl. That's going to be me. I want to follow Jesus and then Jesus all of a sudden, he turns and he addresses the crowd and then he says this with the prerequisite. By the way, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and then you can follow. Let's, let's just be honest for a minute. I think that a lot of times we look at following Jesus like we do when we sign up for all different sorts of things that are out there. I think of, uh, like, let me think of it like this way. Do you read all nine pages of the consent form when you download a song from iTunes? I mean, do you like systematically, anybody out there that does that? You you know you don't, you liars, right? Like all of a sudden you download a song from iTunes, nine pages of consent forms and you, what do you do? You go all the way to the bottom, you click accept, right? Or or, or when we took our kids to the trampoline park uh, not too long ago. They've got all these forms and waivers. I know that something in there says, imminent danger to your kids, and yet I'm like, where do I sign? Click, right? Why? Because we don't take the time to read those things. We don't take the time to read all the terms and conditions. We don't take the time to read all the things that we're supposed to know of this could happen, that could happen. And look, what they could do is they could search something, insert something there that says, we also get all of your money. And I'm just like, click, right? Because I didn't read it. They could say, look, we own your life. And I would just say, click, because I didn't read it. We scroll to the bottom and we click, accept It could be asking to give everything away, but we simply click accept, why? Because we are so focused on the product and not the process. We want a simple procedure with quick results. So the question is, what if we treat the call of Jesus like that in a similar way? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Matthew 16, 24 says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. There is a cost in multiplying because there's a denial of someone. Listen to me. There's a cost in multiplying because there's the denial. Somebody say denial. Denial. Of someone. Ultimately, there will be a denial. Either you will deny self, self will be denied, and self will be refused, or Jesus will be denied, and Jesus will be refused. This is is where the struggle's at, because nobody wants denial, nobody wants to deny. Like, I want Jesus and self, can I have both? And, And here's, Jesus gives us a spiritual principle in Matthew 6, 24, and I know he's talking about money, but it's a spiritual principle that he's given us throughout all of scripture, and he says the same thing. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve, you're gonna deny one. You're gonna not like one. And so here we are, the reason that multiplying has such a major cost to it is because either we're going to deny and refuse ourselves, or we're going to deny and we're going to refuse him. One of those things is not going to produce anything. The other one gives us life and abundant life, amen? The starting point, you need to hear this, that word denied, you can define it as this, a refusing to give or grant what has been requested or desired. The starting point is always the invitation of Jesus. I need you to hear this, church. Come, follow, I will make you fishers of men. The starting point is never contingent on us. It's always contingent on the uh, invitation of Jesus in our life. Like we're not doing it, he's doing it. And he gives us an invitation because the call is always first and foremost. And this is important for somebody in here to hear. You need to hear this, that your past does not define your potential, amen? If it was contingent upon you, you would give me all the reasons why you're not qualified. <laughs> you would tell me all the things that you've done in your life, and you'd lay out your laundry list, and you'd say, see, I'm pretty messed up, right? And I would tell you the same thing that Jesus says. He wants you. Your past does not define your potential. And I don't care if it's, I don't care if it's repulsive. I don't care if it's reputable. In Jesus, we're a new creation. <laughs> So, who you are and how we're getting into this multiplication thing first depends on Jesus' call in your life. And when he says, Come and follow me, he meant it for everyone. Not for some, not for the perfect, not for the wealthy, not for the poor, not for those who are doing really, really well, those who aren't doing it. He meant it for everyone. Come follow me. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But then, once that call happens, here we go. What we do with it is important. And the prerequisite that he gives us is simply this. He must deny himself. Let me show you real quickly a couple things on this self-denial. There's two ways to look at denial. Self-denial and denial of self. And you're going to say, you just said the same thing. And no, I didn't. There's self-denial and denial of self. Listen to this. Um, Let's talk about self-denial real quickly. Anybody anybody ever trained for a marathon in here? Anybody? Okay, we are a lazy church. Awesome. Um, I'm just kidding. Nine o'clock, not one hand went up, FYI. Anybody train for a half marathon in here? Okay, a few few more, you guys are healthier than 9 a.m., amen. Just so you know, I've never done that, I'm just saying. If you've ever trained for a marathon or or, or a half marathon, or if you've ever done a sporting event or any of those kinds of things, you probably put in a lot of time. You probably woke up early in the morning and spent time preparing by going and running or, or training or whatever it is you did. You probably cut out a lot of bad food in your diet. You probably did some things that would look like a sacrifice to everybody else because you did it for a reason because of the challenge that you took on to do your best in in whatever it is that you took on. For most athletes, for instance, church, it isn't a question of, is it worth it? You talk with most athletes and you say, is it worth it? Is it worth getting up in the morning and training? Is it worth Is it worth cutting out food? Is it worth lack of sleep? Or is it worth having to go to bed early? If you talk with most athletes, they won't talk about the question, is it worth it? Instead, they'll say, what I want to know isn't, is it worth it? It's how can I get faster? How can I jump higher? How can I run better? Right? Most of them aren't driven by, is it worth it? They're like, I want to be better. They don't look at not getting to eat certain things or having to get up early in the morning and put in extra time. They don't look at it as punishment because their objective is to be the best at their thing. In fact, they don't start with this. They don't start with what are you willing to give up? That's not what goes through people's heads. When they're wanting to be the best at whatever it is they want to be the best at, it's not that they start with, well, I've got to come up with a, a list of what I'm willing to give up. They don't start with what they're willing to give up, but rather what they're aiming to achieve. Then anything that comes against what they're aiming to achieve, they'll simply cut out. So if unhealthy eating is coming against what I'm trying to achieve, I'll cut it out. To us, it'd be like, that's punishment, right? Right? If something comes against what what they're willing to achieve or they're aiming to achieve, which is you've gotta go run an extra five miles, we'd be like, well, that's punishment. And they're like, no, man, it's what I'm aiming to achieve. You see, church, this right here is the definition of self-denial that anything that can come against that achievement is a hindrance. This is the definition of self-denial. The practice of denying oneself things that hinder the pursuit of a greater purpose. We practice this by things like dieting and budgeting and like I said, athletic desires. We are denying those things because we have a greater purpose that we are after. And that's good, look, I'm all for that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. 16, he's not talking about self-denial. He's not saying make a list of things that are bad for you and just simply cut those out. That's not what he's asking you to do. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth and say, if I just stay away from this, 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 this and this, I'll be perfect. That's not what he did. Self-denial is not where Jesus started the path for us. He didn't come to simply deny himself of things. Look what he does call us to and look what he did do. He calls us to deny self. Not self-denial, but to deny self. Look what he says again in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Look what Jesus did in Philippians 2, six through eight. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. He didn't make a list of things that he was gonna try to stay away from. He gave up his life. Denying self doesn't begin with an analysis of things we need to change in our life. We've talked about that. We're not after behavior modification, right? But denying self demands a different starting point and that is giving up your life. I've got this two definitions. Self-denial is removing certain things from your life. Usually it's temporary to focus on more important things. Denial of self is stepping off the throne of your life to let Jesus reign over your dreams. Let Jesus reign over your passions. Let Jesus reign over your pursuits. How do we know then, man? How do we know if I've denied self or if I'm just self-denial right now? We ask ourselves some things that Jesus would ask in our hearts. Let me just read through this real quickly. What sits enthroned on your heart? What dictates the decisions that I make? Do my career pursuits determine my mission in life or does God's mission determine my career pursuits? Is there anything that gives me greater joy than my relationship with Jesus? Is there anything about the future that excites me more than the Lord and his plans? What do I, this is big for me, what do I daydream about the most? Any daydreamers out there? Y'all are awesome. What do I adamantly try and protect and defend? This is gonna give us a litmus test of who sits on the throne of our hearts. And, if, and, and, and it just, look, I mean, I can answer those and be honest with you. And I can tell you that on a daily basis, there's a battle for me to say, man, there's other things that I daydream about that really come before the Lord at times. And he's like, ah, Aaron, that's a struggle for you. That's a struggle for you. And, and, and look what Philippians 3, 7 through 9 says. Paul, man, he had so much stuff. He, he came from well-means. He was just a, a, he had so much, whether it be wealth and status, all these things. Look what he says in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I can gain Christ and become one with him. Church, can I just say something to you? And I believe this to be true. You could have everything given to you. You could have all the wealth in the world given to you. You could have every toy imaginable given to you. You could have every status imaginable in the world given to you. But if you don't have hope, it means nothing. Nothing. You could have everything given to you. You could have all the money lavished upon you. You could be a quadrillion zillionaire. I don't even know if that exists, right? You could have all that stuff, and at the end of the day, if you don't have peace, it means nothing. You could have all that stuff lavished upon you, but if you don't know genuine love, you would give it all up for it. So when Paul's saying, look, I had these valuable things and I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. I consider everything as worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing God. Paul is saying, everything that you can gain in this world, he would give it up for the hope and peace and love of Jesus because he tasted it and he's seen that it is good. And I'm telling you, church... This to me is big because when we talk about cost and we talk about this identity of multiplying, how do we multiply? We have to look within ourselves and ask, man, am I willing to give up myself? Once we come to this place of denying self, then we realize this truth and we're almost done. What God chooses to do through us is often much greater than what God does with us. Now that's hard because sometimes what God does through us can be painful. And there's a lot of people that's walked through tragedy and you're sitting there going, God, why? Why do I have to walk through tragedy? And yet everybody around you is watching this peace that you carry with Jesus and they get sucked into your life. And so that tragedy that was horrific and nobody's taking that away from you is displaying God's full love and hope and restoration in effect. I want you to hear what I said to you last week, how greatly God multiplies through you depends more on who he is than who we are, amen? Let me, let me share with you a story real quickly and I'll close out with this. i share with you a story of, of how important this looks in real life. There's these Swedish missionaries, and their real deal, real story. Their name was David and Svee Flood. They were around in 1921. They, along with their two-year-old son, David, moved to Congo in Africa. They teamed up with another couple. They were called the Ericssons. After months of laboring in the jungles, the Ericssons reached their limit and angrily said, this is ridiculous. What? What asked the floods? They're like, what do you mean this is ridiculous? Why why are you saying this is ridiculous? Everything they said, the Ericans Ericans said, everything is ridiculous. Coming here to this God forsaken continent, living like animals in the jungles, nearly killing our wives and your son, your two-year-old son that, that he was talking to the flood family with who may die from malaria. It's ridiculous. What do we have to show for the months of work? Malaria, malnutrition, and two village chiefs who are angry with us. And Mr. Flood said that, well, there's a, there's a native boy that has given his life to Jesus. Yes, the Erickson said, one boy, one person, for all the months that we've been here, one small little boy, we get to report one small little boy who gave his life to Jesus, who probably doesn't even understand what we mean anyways. The Erickson's would leave the Congo not long after that while the Flood stayed. Mrs. Flood would give birth to another child, a little girl, they named her Renee, After the birth, though, the birth process was difficult, and because of malaria, Mrs. Flood passed away while little Anae was only 17 days old. While Mr. Flood was digging a grave and he stood over it, a thought came over him what a wasted life! Something in him snapped. Anger and bitterness towards God came over him. He had left on a fool's mission and he had had enough. He took his motherless children and he left the Congo and he headed to the missionary outpost where the Eriksons had gone. He was ready to go back to Sweden and start over. And as he got to the missionary outpost, the Eriksons were there and they pleaded with Mr. Flood, please do not take your daughter with you. She'll certainly die on the way home. The journey is too tough. Determined to get back to Sweden, Mr. Flood made the difficult decision to leave his daughter Anae with the Eriksons, although it was difficult. Within nine months, both the Ericssons passed away, so little Anae was given to an American missionary family called the Bergs, who headed back to the United States. Anae would grow up and marry and visit, visit Sweden because she wanted to find her birth father. When she met him, he was in a rough part of the city, in a little unkept apartment, alcohol bottles all over the place, unshaven, unkept. He'd become an alcoholic and he was wasting his life away. When she came in, she came and she put her hand on her daddy's shoulder and he began to weep and she said, Papa. And he said, I never meant to give you away. She said, it's okay, Papa. God took care of me. With that, Mr. Flood was angry. Because she mentioned God, God forgot about us all. He said, "Our lives are like this because of Him." I gave myself to go to Africa, and all that time, and only one little boy was saved. I was reading this this morning, and man, I was overwhelmed. And they says, "I've got a story to tell you, Papa." You didn't go in vain, and mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you want the Lord grew up to win the whole village to Christ. The little seeds you planted just kept growing and growing. Today, there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call. Listen. A few years later, Anae attended an evangelism conference in London, a report given by Zaire, which was formerly the Congo where they had been, the superintendent of the national church representing hundred and ten thousand believers spoke of the gospel that had been spread in the nation. After the conference, Anae went up to him and asked if he had ever heard of David. And Svia Flood. Yes, ma'am, the man replied. It was Svia Flood who led me to Jesus. Anae said, I'm her daughter. Listen to this. Suddenly tears ran down the man's face, and he said, Thank you for letting your mother die so that we could live. Jesus tells us in John twelve, twenty four, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. What God does through one seed is often more important than what he did with one seed, amen? Let me tell you why that's so powerful. Man, I've read that dang thing three times. (laughs) Let me tell you why that's so powerful because it's the value of life. When you value somebody like that, just one person, when you value somebody like that, that one person can radically change the world. But here's the thing, we don't go through all the persecution like that, right? We don't usually fear death and persecution. We don't usually fear malaria over here. Let me tell you what we fear over here in the United States. Will it risk my comfort and security? Will it risk my job? Will it risk my position? Will it risk my home? Will the will will the cost of this, will the cost of this take away some of my dreams? Will the cost of this cause me to have others that don't approve of me because now I'm labeled as that guy? Will the cost of this wreck my convenience? Because look, I like convenience. Will the cost of this wreck relationships? What about availability? Will I still have availability to do what I wanna do? Because I I, I like my time. The reality is this, is that God isn't asking us to give up something more than he himself gave up. Listen to me, church. All of this thing that we're talking about with cost, it's all about how we value. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are pride and joy, says in Philippians 4.1. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown that I receive from my work. Church, listen, this multiplication thing isn't something that we're notching our belts in. It's saying that we value life, that outside of these walls and inside of these walls, and I get it, we want to do a good job doing this thing together as family, but outside of these walls are neighborhoods crawling with people that are looking for hope. Crawling with people that are looking for peace. Crawling for people that are saying, certainly there's gotta be more to life than this. That's why you're here. Because you were looking and you were saying, man, I found something in Jesus. Or something stirring inside of me with Jesus. But there's a cost. And in that cost, you have to ask yourself, Can we deny self? Can we put ourselves to the side and know that one kernel, one person's life, that through us, God can do something much more than just with us? And that whatever it is that we go through or we have to endure, that when he says to take up our cross and follow him, that he's got us. how to get involved, go to reliancecommunity.org.